0: Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms, from the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries. Anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with doctors Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, authors of Monster She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction. Published by Quark Books, September seventeenth, two thousand nineteen, and it's it won the twenty twenty Locus Award for nonfiction, and and has won other awards as well. So thank you both for speaking with me.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having us.
0: So first, how did uh how did both of you how did you get involved involved in studying and and writing a book on this subject? I guess Lisa, you can start.
2: Um. Well, this is our I. <sighs> Well, I'll start at the beginning. <laughs> Melanie and I met in Oxford, Mississippi when we were both doing our doctorate at the University of Mississippi, and we were both studying literature. She was studying American literature. I was studying British literature, and we actually were sharing an office, and we so we spent a lot of time in our office kind of getting to know each other and trying to put off our own <laughs> dissertation writing and in doing that, we kind of discovered that we had a mutual love for like ghost stories in particular, but also uh, horror fiction. And we discovered we liked a lot of the same authors. And from that, I think from that friendship and from those earliest talks, that's where we came up with the idea to write this book just so that we could kind of trace the history of some of the women who wrote the types of
1: stories that we liked and that's really where it started so Mm
0: -hmm. and melanie
1: yeah i i think lisa did a pretty good job of kind of summarizing how we got to know each other i mean Mm -hmm. i would just add that uh in addition to that we also did uh, two academic projects together before we embarked on monster she wrote so when we were still in graduate school, we started collecting essays for an essay collection basically on ghosts and spectrality and literature and film, um, and that became an essay collection that Lisa and I co-wrote the introduction for, so we started even then kind of working out our system of writing together and then we ended up doing another essay collection on Shirley Jackson and again we co-wrote the introduction on that so i think i feel like once we had done that work and gotten we kind of figured out how we work together as writers versus our conversations where we were each working on our own projects our own dissertations our own publications mm-hmm. that probably helped us to be able to envision monster she wrote i think as well And during this time, we started um, when we were teaching at different institutions, we started a podcast with another friend of ours from grad school, Matt Say, the No Fear Cast. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of got us thinking about ways that we could take this knowledge that we got from our work in academe and at universities and, you know, talked to folks who may not be necessarily in that conversation just about like what books they like or, or movies or that sort of thing. And so mm-hmm. I think that also helped helped us to take that knowledge that we had from other projects, but try to communicate it to a more general audience, which was definitely our goal with, with a project like Monster She Wrote. Mm-hmm.
0: And Melanie, I'll start with you uh, for this question. Um, how do you break down The subject matter of the book, is it like biographies or is it a chronological uh, thing or thematic and and also what date range or what years does it cover?
1: Well, it's very ambitious in the years that it covers. And I know I think I'm also speaking for Lisa in this as well, that when we, we talk about this book with people, we find ourselves talking about how it kind of mixes, I guess, genre. Mm -hmm. But we we cover from around the 1600s with Margaret Cavendish as close to now as we can possibly get. And as we tell people, this is a peek into women writing. There's no way we could have covered, you know, every single woman writing in in these genres. Um, We tried to organize it relatively chronologically, but we also tried to connect writers who had things in common So, for example, I'll just I could talk about a couple of the different um, sections. Our first part we called the Founding Mothers, where we started with someone like Margaret Cavendish, who was writing really early in the 17th century and then we we moved into 18th century british gothic which was what lisa specialized in in graduate school and so we we hit some of those gothic women writers who were writing at that time and then we have a section where we talk a little bit about some women who are writing for pulp magazines and we kind of put them together we have a section where we focus on some of the uh most well-known and then a couple maybe not so well-known writers of ghost stories and then we, we tried to use the final part of the book to take some of the themes that we had mentioned in previous chapters like weird or vampire fiction or haunted house and you know give readers an idea of of how women were still contributing to those themes but then in in each section we not only have a little bit telling you like this is some characteristics of haunted house fiction but we also and why women were drawn to that but we also have a little a profile for selected writers where we give a little bit of biographical information about them, and then we try to make connections to other writers. So like for the Toni Morrison selection, we have you know a bio of Toni Morrison. We talk a little bit about why some of her stuff is supernatural or has horror in it, but then we also will say like, okay, if you like that, maybe you should check out, you know, like Gloria Naylor's work or Tananarive Du or or other writers. So that was, that was how we tried to approach it. I, know, I, I think Lisa would agree with me on that description. It's it's like bio and recommendation and also uh, like brief snippets of explanations maybe of different themes and, and genres as you go. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And Lisa, do you have anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, it
2: was, I mean, everything Melanie just described <laughs> is absolutely accurate, but um, yeah, I will say that one thing that, we struggled with as we were putting together this book because it is so comprehensive and we knew there was no way we could absolutely fit in everybody because it would have been this massive like 10 volume book, I think, by the end. And so I think we, what we tried to do is cover not only a broad scope of history so that there was a little sampling from, you know, every time period. But also, we were cognizant of who was reading this book, because we knew that there were people that would pick up the book who loved the horror genre, and we knew that there were going to be a lot of these names that they already recognized. So we wanted to put in a few surprises that we had to dig up um, that even most horror fans would know. But then we were also trying to be a little bit sneaky as well, because... I know there are a lot of people who are turned off by the term horror. And, you know, they'll say, oh, no, I can't read that stuff. I can't watch that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But then they do. Right. Then, then they'll tell me like, oh, but I love Toni Morrison's Beloved. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, but that's a very, very scary book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we also wanted to put in some names that people might not associate with the horror genre just to kind of bring over those people and kind of let them get used to that label a little bit. Um, But really I think what we wanted to do when Mel was talking about it being a kind of recommended reading list is we wanted this book to be a starting point. So we know it's not comprehensive and we're hoping that people will be inspired to go out and read more. And that's what the whole last section of the book was about was just kind of look at all these authors that are writing now today Go out and find them and find more that aren't mentioned in here and kind of make that your mission. And I think that is really exciting about what this book does is that it just hopefully excites people to read more of these women.
0: So how many of these, um, these women, uh, either hid their identity or used a different name, you know, to to try to make it, make themselves gender, uh, unidentifiable, or maybe as though they were a man writing.
1: Well, you know, that is an interesting question. And it's something that gets mentioned a lot in women writing, especially in genre fiction. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, if you just look through kind of the chapters that we have and the women that we have, in the grand scheme of things, there's probably not as many women using pseudonyms, male pseudonyms, as you would think. Mm-hmm. And especially if you think about women writing for the pulps, um, there are scholars who've talked about this. Uh, Lisa Yazik is one that comes to mind in particular. You know, she mentions that, yes, there were probably women who were using pseudonyms for that purpose. But the ones that you identify, like we have, you know, Catherine Lucille Moore, who went by C.L. Moore, it's pretty much believed that she did that because, you know, she had a day job and she just wanted her life, her two lives be separate or write her life and her day job. It wasn't necessarily that she didn't want everybody to know she was a woman. And I believe that a lot of readers knew she was a woman. Some writers would even use, they would use a pen name, but it would be a name that was easily identifiable as a woman. Like Margaret St. Clair, if she used a pseudonym, it would be Idris Seabright, which people just also assumed was a woman. Mm-hmm. I think one time she used a male pseudonym and that was just because the magazine she was publishing for said, this is the house pseudonym you know, for people who are publishing here. So this is what you use. Mm-hmm. Um, even Everell Worrell, her pseudonym was just her name backward, which I'm not even sure how you pronounce it. I guess it'd be Livray or something like that, but people assumed it was a woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there were women who felt like if they had a male pseudonym, that they might've been able to be published more easily. Mm-hmm. But I, I also feel I feel like there's a lot of evidence that contradicts that too, that women were okay with, you know, being known as women writers. Um, even Margaret Cavendish. I don't believe she used a pen name and she's writing in the 1600s when it was very it looked down upon for a woman to be writing about philosophy or various other topics. Th- that was one of the things, I mean, I don't want to speak for Lisa per se, but that was one of the things that I thought was interesting when we were writing Monster She Wrote is I don't want to like completely generalize, but I feel like my thoughts about women using pseudonyms changed a bit. The more I saw women using pseudonyms interchangeably almost for professional reasons and not necessarily maybe to mask their gender. I'm not saying that women didn't necessarily think of that, but I feel like I don't want to generalize that they were thinking that, you know, because there, there were women who weren't necessarily feeling that that was necessary.
0: Mm-hmm. And Lisa.
2: Yeah. I feel like if, if women were doing that, it, it might've been most during that pulp period of time. Um, but then again, it, it, it is difficult because, you know, you, you saw in, in like, the, I don't know, the 1800s, like, kind of late 1800s, the rise of the ghost story and these, like, serialized novels, you know, that, that were appearing in magazines. A lot of women were making money writing stories, and they were not trying to hide who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not trying to hide their identity at all. I think you did see the pen names more or the initials being used more as you got into the 19th century with those pulp magazines. But it's difficult to tell it precisely why they were doing it. I'm some, sure some did it to hide their gender. I think probably more did it because they were writing a lot of stories. And so they used a lot of pen names uh, just so they could kind of continue that. Um, you know, they would write a few under this name and a few under this name and Yeah, so I don't. I don't really know if that played a big part of it. Um, I I would not. I would love to do more study into it because I would. This is just my personal ideas, but I would think that more people today might be trying to hide gender, especially with like hardcore horror stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, today more than they did back in the past. But I've that. I don't have any evidence to back that up. That's just a thought. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, and I just want to jump in here really quickly. Sure. You also have to think about the fact that this genre, whether you know it's horror as we think of it or, or supernatural or whatever, has often been an entryway for women to write. like women made mm-hmm. money in the nineteen in the nineteenth century uh, writing these stories, and I feel like. That that marginalization, maybe, of the genre and the fact that it was in magazines and serializations might have lent it more easily to women breaking into the genre in order to write. And then sometimes you would have, you know, women who were writing with a partner, and then they would use a pen name just for, you know, a one name for two people writing together. So, yeah, there's many different reasons why women would make those decisions.
0: I'm speaking with doctors Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, authors of Monster She Wrote. You can find more information on their work at lisakroger.com and melanieranderson.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. Does the book have non-American or non-British writers included in it?
1: We focus a lot on American and British because that's where our backgrounds uh, come from. Since I studied American lit and Lisa studied British, Mm -hmm. we did include... We included writers who might have origins in other countries, but now have American or British uh, citizenship. I'm thinking of, like, you know, Helen Oyayemi. Lisa, can you think of any writers that we included that weren't necessarily American or British?
2: I want to say that maybe there were a few Japanese writers. Yes. It yes. towards, yeah. Um, that's something that I think I would like to do more research in. Um, I think for one thing, it was out of our area of expertise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that made us, I think, a little bit uncomfortable. Or at least I would say it would would have taken a broader scope of research than we really could have done with this book. I I, I think we want to approach that in the future. But we also wanted to pick uh, novels and stories that had been translated into English and that were relatively easy to find Mm -hmm. um, because we were anticipating that this book was going to probably, you know, be sold in the U S and Canada, maybe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I, you know, we wanted with this idea of this being a recommended reading list, kind of an extended reading list. We wanted um, books that people could find readily and that were readily available in English. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would love to do something in the future that that deals with kind of horror that's happening with women in other countries, because there's a lot of it and it's really good.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I totally understand the um, and, and you know limitations of the size of the book. And there's so much like you said, you could do a 10 volume series on this. <laughs> so uh, I did another interview with um, Jess Nevins, who wrote. Uh, horror fiction in the 20th century. And one of the things that he said surprised him was how, how many, how, how much female writers dominated horror fiction in the 19th century. You know, they, they were the, the major producers of it. And then it, it changed in the 20th century. So, um, I'm just curious to hear more about, uh, 19th century, uh, horror literature written by women. And Lisa, I guess if you could start.
2: Uh, Mel will probably have a more interesting answer than I do, because I know she's read a lot more of it. Um, no, there, there was some really great um, literature that was coming out of that time. I mean, for one thing, ghost stories were already popular, especially in the latter half of the century. So I think the most well-known one right now is, you know, probably Dickens and A Christmas Carol. But, you know, Christmas stories and the Christmas, like, Victorian ghost story, that was a staple for decades. And women were writing, writing a lot of that. But then there was also kind of the rise of spiritualism just in general as well. So I think people had a very... A very wide ranging interest in anything that had to do with the spectral world, and writers were taking advantage of that, so a lot of it was you know you either saw like women writing these kind of mysteries that involved you know oh, they're looking for a large inheritance that they can't find, and so the ghost of great uncle Theodore comes to them and tells them where it is, or Um, sometimes you had, um, like murder mysteries type ghost stories where, you know, a house would be haunted by somebody who had been murdered or killed or, um, often like there was a lot of child ghosts too, which I find fascinating. (laughs) Um, you know, the idea of like a a poor neglected child who was coming back, not really malevolently, but more of a just, I don't know, kind of don't forget I lived type of story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and maybe as guilt, you know, there, there are a lot of these kind of ghost of guilt stories. I don't know, Mel, I feel like you have probably read a few more of these than I have. So you might want to take over.
1: <laughs> oh, man, I think I mean, I think there are many reasons why that happened. One is probably that writing became starting with those Gothic writers, even in the 18th century and into the 19th century, writing became much more accessible you know, you had a more literate population. It was a lot cheaper to print reading material. Uh, there were more people who were getting books. So this is, you know, during the time when Gothic writing was really popular in you know the 18th century, you know, you would have people who would like work a factory job and they wanted to read something entertaining. So they were going to grab like an Ann Radcliffe novel or something because they wanted some ghosts and violence. And, you know, it's escapist fiction. Um, and I think that continued on you know, into the 19th century, because you have the explosion in, like Lisa mentioned, periodicals with serialization and magazines, the kind of Charles, what we think of now as like a Charles Dickens phenomenon, Mm -hmm. but even then, Elizabeth Gaskell was just as popular as Charles Dickens at the time. And she was also writing social realism and supernatural, just like, you know, Charles Dickens. And so I think that the explosion of periodicals and magazines and more stuff being published just opened up the market maybe to more voices. And you also have, I mean, this is kind of a generalization here, but you have changing ideas of like what even constitutes work. So this idea of, you know, the separate spheres where the man leaves the home in order to earn money and take care of the family, whereas the woman stays home and takes care of the house. And it's almost like angel in the house type idea uh, that was popular at the time. And I think writing let women... Kind of stay in the house, I guess, to put it that way, and send out stories and get them published and folks would read them and they would get paid. So it was one of the few ways that women could ideally, you know make some money if they were widowed or they had children or a family or even a husband who's lost his job and they need to support them. And so I think that that kind of the changing kind of economics of the situation, or the time period helped too and then i think what happens is once you get past the 1900s and people are anthologizing and teaching literature we start to change what we want to read or value one because not all the periodicals are going to stick around so you know you're going to have to go into libraries even find a lot of these women writing and even some men writing supernatural fiction Mm -hmm. and then what starts getting anthologized well stuff that you can pull so if more men are getting anthologized for whatever reason or taught then we're going to look back and think the Victorian days were the times of Dickens and forget about some of the other writers like, you know, Vernon Lee or, or uh, Charlotte Riddle or Elizabeth Gaskell. Um, and then you also have, you know, we both taught in universities. I still teach in one academe does a lot with this too, where if folks are taught for certain reasons, then that's kind of the literature that ends up getting published. And then that's what people read. Hmm. So you have writers like Henry James and Edith Wharton who we mainly know now as realist writers, like Age of Innocence, you know, or the Bostonians talking about realism and the upper crust. But both of them wrote loads of ghost stories and published them and enjoyed writing ghost stories. But I mean, when I was taking classes as an undergrad, people always pointed to Henry James and Edith Wharton as social realist writers and didn't even talk about their ghost stories at all. I mean, it wasn't until I was in graduate school where I was like, Oh, cool. I'm going to read all these ghost stories that Edith Wharton wrote, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's all sorts of reasons that go into that. Gender certainly is one, but I think there's also a lot of other reasons that go into, like, what gets saved. Even the pulp writers, you know, in the in the 20th century, they're writing in these paper magazines. Nobody's thinking when they buy their copy off the newsstand of Astounding Tales or something that they're going to keep this for the rest of their life. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to read through it and love the stories, and, and possibly it'll get thrown away or degrade or something. And so I think... I feel like there are probably a lot more women writing all throughout American literature. It's just who we remember. Um, You know, When I teach Nathaniel Hawthorne, I talk to my students about how there were a lot of women writing at the time of Nathaniel Hawthorne that we don't really necessarily think about now, especially if you're taking an undergraduate class. In fact, Hawthorne even said at one point he felt like he could make more money off his writing if he didn't have to compete with the the damn scribbling women. And so it's kind of like it's what was going on in the time period. It's also like, what do we look back at and what do we value and what do we hang on to, you know, and why do we make those decisions?
0: Um, That sounds like a good name for a writing club. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's an odd comment uh, or funny. Um, So this question, I guess, uh, Lisa, you can answer it first. So as far as uh, mixing uh, violence, gore and sex with their horror, Uh, did over time, did you notice women doing more, less, or just as much as, um, as male writers?
2: I think it, that changed, it kind of ebbed and flowed with, I mean, maybe with the reading habits of what, uh, what people, you know, were, were reading and what they were into. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, certainly, like, today, you know, women can write just as much of the kind of, you know, sex, gore, violence, whatever, as a, as a man can. But even if you go back to um, the Gothic novelists, which, I mean, they were primarily women. If you, if you look at some of the presses that were coming up around, like, I don't know, the periods from, like, 1790 to 1820, which is kind of the high point of the Gothic novel – you know, there were women, I mean, there were presses that were popping up solely to um, print these women Gothic writers. And a lot of people, you know, in schools, if if you're an undergrad and you're taking, you know, an English lit course, your professor may force you to read Anne Radcliffe's like The Mysteries of Udolpho or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, yes, it, it, it is the kind of probably most influential gothic novel. It set a lot of the trends. Of course, you know, Jane Austen later wrote about some of those books. But when you look at Anne Radcliffe, she was very much into what she termed terror, Mm -hmm. which did not go into the violence and gore. She just wanted to, she thought if you went too far into that, you would just shock your readers and and they wouldn't feel anything. And the point of terror was to kind of awaken your senses and not to obliterate them completely. (laughs) But if you look at, and she also was famous for the explained supernatural, which basically just meant you thought there were ghosts uh, throughout the story until you got to the end. And they were all kind of explained away by real world um, explanations. But some of the writers that were writing at the same time, somebody like, oh, Charlotte Dacker or Regina Maria Roche or Mary Ann Radcliffe, who wrote this book called the One, uh, Manfroni or the One Handed Monk. Um, those books, there's a lot of blood and guts and just gross things. I mean, you can imagine Manfroni. Within, I think, the first chapter, a woman is attacked in her room, is almost raped, and then the man who's attacking her gets his hand chopped off and thrown in a fire. Mm. And that's like the first chapter of the book. <laughs> I mean, it's not as well written, I don't think, as, you know, uh, maybe an Anne Radcliffe, but if if that's what you're looking for like if you're thinking about horror as being you know there's a lot of blood and guts and you know um shocking sex then it was still there in the very beginning hmm. and that's something i kind of like to to point out because women were always doing it you know what whatever has been a trend we were always doing it so hmm. yeah it was always
1: there in <laughs> melanie Oh, I agree with Lisa. And and actually, Lisa, if you don't mind, I would like to ask if you agree with me on this. But, you know, personally, and Lisa and I have had conversations about this, and I think this is also part of where Monster Shiro came from, but I actually am more of, like, the supernatural, uh, thriller, um, uh, terror and weird type person, and not necessarily kind of the gruesome horror. And I always kind of, at least until I started talking to Lisa and doing some of the work I was doing on my dissertation and talking about haunted fiction, I just kind of, like, assumed that horror was something, like, with a capital H that almost meant, like, slasher films or something. I didn't necessarily think of the kind of supernatural fiction that I liked as that. And I wonder if women if we think about because we just automatically think like oh women must not have these gruesome things in their writing as Lisa points out has been there since the beginning I'm wondering if there's some sort of I don't know like stereotypical idea maybe that women wouldn't even write something like that you know Um, Like we were talking about earlier, the pseudonym, that a woman might need to use a male pseudonym to write something that's really hardcore, I guess we would say, or really violent or whatever. I mean, Lisa, do you you think there's some sort of like stereotype maybe about women writers that they wouldn't even they wouldn't be interested in that, per se? Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I think there, you know, you could talk about like some sort of broad, you know, societal ideas of what, you know, the genders are supposed to be into, you know, of course, this is very much like, I guess, traditional binary, like male, female, um, not taking into account, I think, all, all the, all, all of the things on the spectrum that I think gender can fall into, this is looking at, you know, just those stereotypical things, but I know, I mean, just in my own personal kind of reading habits, even as a child, which this may have gone into in part why I wanted to write a book like this is I would always gravitate towards the ghost stories. I would always gravitate towards horror stories, even even the like horror stories that were meant for children. You know, one of my favorite books was scary stories to tell in the dark. And I think I read that so many times that I could like quote it back to you. And I I was young And then, you know, that moved into, like, Edgar Allan Poe and Stephen King and, you know, all all the probably classics that, you know, people who have always loved horror grew up reading. But I always had people say, you're so nice. Why don't you read something a little bit nicer? (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's expected because – or, I mean, that was kind of what was expected, is that I would want to read something nicer. You know, I don't know what that means. I don't know what nice literature is. But, um, you know, I would often get that comment. Yeah, I think there is kind of an expectation among writers that... If, if women write horror, we're going to write some sort of quieter horror, you know, that it's going to be just a soft little ghost story and not, necessary, not necessarily the, you know, slasher story about somebody spilling their guts everywhere. You know, even if you look at academics, and I'm tying this back to the gothic novel now, but there was even, you know, for a time, like this idea of the male gothic and the female gothic, hmm. So that you had the expectation was that, you know, the male gothics were were the ones who pushed the envelope a little bit more. A, a prime example of that would be like Richard Matheson's Hell House versus like Shirley Jackson's Hill House, which Hell House is much more kind of like a fun house carnival of yeah. <laughs> demons and things happening. And then Shirley Jackson's is a little bit. I don't want to say quieter because it's still just as scary, but it's definitely more of oh, is this all in her head or is it not? It's much more psychological. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good example of how people, even even with the best of intent, like academics who love the material, will still want to separate it out based on gender. And I just don't think that that's warranted when you really look at everything that women have been writing. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm speaking with doctors Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, authors of Monster She Wrote. You can find more information on their work at com and melanieranderson.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. For each of you, what, what would you say is the, the most shocking story that you came across uh, researching for this book? Um, it was shocking in whatever way you want to define that. Uh, Melanie, do you have one?
1: Oh man, I'm gonna have to think about this.
0: And, or Lisa, if you have one that comes to mind,
2: I—I I mean, I don't know if it's shocking so much as scandalous, and I—I <laughs> I like it um, <laughs> <laughs> in that it—we uh, start out with Margaret Cavendish, mm-hmm. um, who. Wrote even before, uh, like Anne Radcliffe and uh, Mary Shelley. Of course, a lot of people like to point to Mary Shelley to be like, see, you know, the sci-fi and horror genres always started with women, you know, looking at Frankenstein. But even going back further, if you look at um, Margaret Cavendish, and she was very much wanting to write science fiction, what we would now call, I think, science fiction or speculative fiction. And we came across this one story about how she she was always trying to craft her own persona as a writer. And she wanted people to talk about her. And so I think we included it in the book because I was just like, I love this. But (laughs) she um, would go to the opera with her husband, who was like a nobleman and she would have her dresses cut so that basically her breasts were outside of her dress. And then she would paint her nipples red Mm. (laughs) and she would go to the opera like that. And people like (laughs) documented it. Like people would be like, uh, yeah, Margaret Cavendish was out again last night. (laughs) And, (laughs) but I also love that idea because it completely goes against like Mel was talking about earlier about how, you know, women writing were kind of seen by some of the quote unquote Mm -hmm intellectual, serious male writers like Hawthorne or something as being, you know, those damn scribbling women sitting at home, you know, what are they doing? But then when you look at somebody like Margaret Cavendish, it was like, no, she did not want to be sitting at home as like a housewife and a mother. And she wanted to be out in the world, like making people look at her and making people talk about her and then making people talk about her ideas, which you know, and that that went beyond just her speculative fiction writing. She wrote, you know, she had philosophies about science and mathematics and all sorts of things that, you know, women were not supposed to have ideas on. Hmm. And I, yeah, I just I love kind of that brazenness. So I don't know if that's I no. love that
1: story. I always like to tell it.
0: That's cool. <laughs> and Melanie, that's a,
1: that's a good one. OK, <laughs> I, I got one now. Sure. OK. Um, I think learning about uh, Dion Fortune was really fascinating to me. And this is going back to when I just started reading some of her stuff on my own. And then when we got into Monster, she wrote. So her uh, collection of occult detective fiction or supernatural mysteries uh, about her fictional character, Dr. Taverner, uh, she writes in the preface to that book that everything that happened And, you know, the mysteries of Dr. Taverner Taverner were true and happened to her. So she talks about how she had a mentor who taught her how to diagnose people, not just physically, medically, but spiritually as well. So she basically says, like, all these stories about this guy who has this spiritual, psychical hospital and is helping people who think they're vampiric or have had curses put on them or whatever is is true. She, She basically says she changed the names a little bit. And every single story was inspired by real life. Um, and, and I thought that was fascinating. And there's a lot with her, where her real life enters into her writing, in I think really interesting ways. And while we were researching for Monsters She Wrote, we saw where some people had mentioned that she believed that Britain could use psychical protections during the war to protect them themselves from invasion. And I just thought that was really fascinating that she she lived, you know, her psychic and philosophical ideas for real. It wasn't just she was writing fiction for her. Her real life was inspiring her fiction. And, and you know, she felt like she could even use kind of psychic powers or, or angels or spirits to even, like, protect her country. So mm-hmm. she has a amazing buy-in into her belief systems. And, and I thought that was really interesting.
0: Mm yeah that is and actually that makes me wonder, um maybe this has no impact, but did you see a difference between um sort of the religious uh how religious the people were, you know Catholics, Protestants, or maybe just authors who were pretty much atheists? Do you see anything like that, or are either of you able to comment on on that
1: aspect? Ah, oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if some of these women faced some blowback in a Christian society because of the stuff that they were writing about. You know, like that's dangerous or or, or devil work or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I read recently an old article where somebody was interviewing Gray Laspina, who wrote for Weird Tales, that when she moved to the small town in Pennsylvania, she said the people in town called her the Hex on the Hill mm-hmm. because of her creepy stories, <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> And I imagine that was probably an issue with the the people who adhered to spiritualism, though. Spiritualism in the, you know, the 19th century had an interesting relationship with religion because there were a lot of people who were Christians who kind of latched onto spiritualism as evidence of an afterlife and like proving what they believed. Um, But a little bit maybe gentler than Christianity because there wasn't as much focus on the punishment. And so I think there was probably like an uneasy, truce or balance there. I don't know, Lisa, I know that there were some pretty intense things written about Satan and the devil and Gothic literature by women. Was, were there, was there blowback then in the, in the 1700s?
2: You know, I, that, that is very interesting. Um, I'm sure there was, I just don't know of any of it. Um, and, you know, that maybe now that we're, this is okay. This is interesting now that I'm thinking about it. Cause I had not put this, you know, really into, into my thoughts earlier when we were talking about like women writing under pen names, but I mentioned the book Manfroni, the one handed monk, which is pretty, pretty out there Mm -hmm. (laughs) with stuff. And that, that's one of those that we're almost sure is that like, we're not even entirely sure who wrote those book, that book, or who was writing under the name Marian Radcliffe. And that may have been a case where somebody was writing, um, using a pseudonym though. I, I wouldn't know why, but, you know i don't know it, it's interesting because horror both kind of reflects the time it, it's in like a lot of the uh gothic novels early gothic novels they dealt with religion in one of two ways number 1 the heroine always had to be virtuous and close to god but she usually was close to god through her relationship with nature so yeah. she would kind of go outside and I don't know, it it was a very kind of, I don't know, almost poetic type of worship of like, oh, you know, I see this beautiful tree before me. And so I know there's a God type thing. Mm -hmm. And then, but it was also very anti-Catholic. So like almost all of the uh, villains in the Gothic novels were like monks were were never good. Um, <laughs> you know, nuns were almost never good. And you can see some of that still like creeping into today, right? I mean, they, there's still a lot of like creepy nun and imagery and stuff in, in the uh, in the movies that we even see today. But they, I think that was more of reflecting the time period and like what who the audience was because it, it was in England in the late 18th century so it would have been a protestant audience but you know villains always had italian or spanish names and they usually were catholic um mm-hmm. so it, i you know i don't know um yeah i think it it just it you can definitely see that shift over time though so i yeah that i'd love to look more into that cuz i don't know if i've honestly ever ever really considered that
0: hmm. much Interesting. So, so let me turn towards how, to how you did the research for this book, considering the vast amount of material you could go through. Um, how did you, did you just go to, you know, the wells that you had been going to normally for your, the research you always did, or how did you branch out? And I guess, Melanie, you can start.
1: Sure, yeah, I think, I mean, this this was a, a really intense undertaking, and I think we had a couple things that helped us even get started, and one was that, obviously, we had both, you know, studied this topic in various facets in graduate school, so there were things that I had read for my dissertation or for research I had done since, you know, graduate school for other publications, and there were things that Lisa had read and was familiar with that we could kind of pool together. So, you know, Lisa had a great knowledge of some of the earlier writers and also some of like the paperback horror, whereas I had read a lot with the women ghost story writers and haunted house stuff um, and some with occult detective fiction. We both love Shirley Jackson. So luckily we had we had done a lot of reading already and then it was a lot of reading and just trying to get our hands on stuff, which sometimes we weren't always able to get our hands on works because these things would be out of print. But then we also luckily had some research kind of almost like in our back pocket that we had already done, even, you know, that we might have used in classes that we had taught that I think helped us get started. But yeah, I mean, it was it was about six or seven months of really intense kind of deep dives trying to uh, add to the list of women that we had, trying to decide on how to format and include ones we wanted to include. You know, some people we couldn't necessarily find enough biographical information on, or some people we couldn't get our hands on things they wrote. And, you know, I just want to say thank you to all the librarians who helped me during this, too. (laughs) I mean, I was at uh, two different schools. I was first teaching at a school in West Virginia, and that library helped me a lot in interlibrary loan. Then I did a lot of the research where I am now in Mississippi, and uh, the school library interlibrary loan helped me a lot with that, too. But yeah, I mean, not just academic research, but also trying to find, trying to find some primary research from the time, like getting the newspapers. I think Lisa did some of that. Um, Lisa could probably talk a little bit about how she was looking into archives of pulp magazines to try to get a feel for what was going on there. There were a couple of databases uh, on British writers, like Cambridge's in particular, that we were able to use to help us out. It was just a lot of reading. And there were times where I joked with Lisa that I felt like Indiana Jones or something, because I would be like trying to track down one particular quote or one particular story and just like either not be able to get it through my library contacts or, you know, or we would have like a few different sources, but not be able to pinpoint exactly what it was that we were trying to find. So. There was some joys where you would find something and be like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then there were also, I think, some sorrows as we'd just be like, oh, man, I, I don't know if we could find any more of this or pinpoint where this precisely came from. Uh, Lisa, yeah. how was your research?
2: Yeah, there were times that we were <laughs> getting desperate <laughs> because I think for, um, yeah, for, for the beginning kind of bare bones structure of the book, we, we were pretty well covered because I had such um, an extensive reading list already of British authors. And Melanie was the same way with um, American authors. So we could kind of fit those together nicely. But then there there were writers that we would read about, or maybe we would have like one story from them and we would think, oh, this is a really good story. We want to include them, but we couldn't find any information whatsoever on this person. It was just like they disappeared. Mm. And for yeah, especially for the pulp writers, um, because we wanted that section on the pulp writers because, you know, the weird tales era of like you know, especially the 40s and 50s that that was so important to um, the development of the horror genre and the literature of the 20th century. Uh, when you when you start talking about you know horror as it evolved over the 20th century, uh, a lot of those stories because a lot of the writers you know, from the seventies and eighties that like I grew up reading, they were growing up reading stuff in the pulp magazines. Mm. So we wanted to include a section on the pulp magazines and we knew there were a lot of women, but we struggled to find information. And there, there are a couple of uh, online websites that are devoted to it. And then I just was having to look at archives. Um, I was having to go through old copies of the magazines and it it really was like i was a detective at one point because it it would the research went something like this i would be reading a magazine and i would see a letter to an editor that referenced a story that was in issue you know 52 or whatever mm-hmm. and so then i'd be like okay i know that author was published in issue 52 so i'd have to go track down that issue and then i'd read it and see if it had what i needed but it really was that kind of level of research by the time we were trying to put it all together. And then I think there, there was, you know, just the frustration too of not being able to include, I think like the d- diversity of writers that we wanted to, because I think Melanie and I were both hesitant to write too much about women who are writing today because they're not done with their careers, right? <laughs> it's still, they're still, careers are still unfolding in front of our eyes. So mm-hmm. While we wanted to mention them in that la- last section, we couldn't really devote an entire entry to what they were doing. Um, so we had to look at people in the past. Well, the problem with that is that a lot of this stuff has just disappeared. You know, a lot of the periodicals, unless unless you were writing with Dickens, mm-hmm. um, you were kind of, you know, people, historians didn't keep your stuff. Um, and And it was literally printed on paper that was so cheap that it was meant to, you know, not withstand the test of time and it was the same with the pulp magazines um unfortunately unless you happen to appear in an issue with somebody like hp lovecraft then those were not the ones that were saved Mm -hmm. so i think there were a lot of writers out there that we would have loved to have included or that we probably don't even know about today just because it doesn't exist anymore um which is frustrating
0: yeah did did any of these did you come across any uh female authors of uh or writers for the horror comic books. That, that's probably outside of the scope of your your work, but I'm just
2: curious Um I mean in my own personal reading, yes. <laughs> uh I think when we first sat out to do this book we had wanted to include like horror comics and horror films and horror TV shows and horror, um, you know, horror uh, illustrators, like people who were doing artwork that was based on it. Like we wanted horror theater, like anything that had to do with the genre. If women were involved, we wanted to do it. But yeah, in the end, just for the scope of things of this book, we didn't, we didn't get get to really include it. But I mean, there are a lot of, of horror comic
1: writers that I love just personally.
0: Okay. And Melanie?
1: Uh, Lisa's probably much more versed in that than I am. And, you know, when we initially had a list of women we wanted to write about, Lisa had a little mini section. I remember it, Lisa, of, <laughs> of, of illustrators <laughs> that you were really passionate about including, and we just couldn't, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it it happens. But maybe
2: maybe in another project.
0: <laughs> so, um... Uh, And this, for this kind of work, maybe this question isn't apt, but perhaps it is. Um, was there anything you came across either of you that had a a strong emotional impact on you in any way, either positively or negatively?
1: I think personally, there was a lot of reading these women's stories and just seeing their joy and what they were doing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, part of the reason we wrote this book is we wanted to give a little bit of a primer of, like, these are the beginnings of what we think of as horror, and this is how it runs up to here, and this is how there's a lot of subgenres in horror. And I think, unfortunately, even people who love the genre and don't mean to not include women, we just kind of go to, you know, Poe and Lovecraft or Matheson or King and just, like, this whole list of people. And I think for me sitting down and taking a step back and listing out all these women and kind of seeing that they were they were just going to do what they were going to do I mean I found this um short biographical piece by Margaret St. Clair that she had written at one point for an editor to introduce herself to her readers. And first she talks about how she's kind of mad she has to do it because she wants to be private. You know, she says she just wants to write you know, garden you know, all day and and write her stories and send them out and get them published. She doesn't feel the need to like show her picture, and, like tell everybody who she is and, and what's going on. But St. Clair even says in this little piece when when she's she's been asked by the editor to talk about what kind of stories she wants to write and she says that she kind of defends writing for the pulps. And she says, I could write stories for the slicks as she calls them, you know, the more marketed, I guess, uh, magazines of time. And she's like, I have, and here they are. But she's like, I really love writing science fiction, fantasy and supernatural because she just said that that was, that it just brought her joy. And that's what she wanted to write. And she didn't really care what other people told her, her writing career had to be. If she was going to write, she was going to write what she wanted to write. And it was going to be published, you know? And, yeah, I know uh, Eric Leaf Davin, he talks about different interviews with St. Clair and a couple other of the pulp writers where they were asked, did you have a lot of problems writing as a woman in this time period? And St. Clair said her only problem was finding enough what was it her only problem was submitting enough stories to enough magazines to get published because she was sending out so many stories like one magazine would be like okay look we can only have like one of your stories in each of these issues (laughs) (laughs) and so she had to send all these stories to others and they just I don't know there's like this joy in what they were doing like they're working all day at a day job and then they go home and they write these really awesome stories that they, they believe in and all they want is to get published. They're not even themselves necessarily thinking about what their legacy would be or their history would be. Mm-hmm. Um, or somebody like Charlotte Riddle, and then I'll let Lisa talk, but you know, Charlotte Riddle had a pretty bad marriage. I mean, nobody knows all the facts about it because there's not a lot of biographical information about her, but there were a couple scholars that have written about her life and it's unclear as to whether her husband couldn't work or wouldn't work or was fired, but she had a lot of marital issues and she she had to write to support them. And so her life was almost like this this mad scribbling just to get stuff out and get published in order to take care of herself. And it was those stories with the women who were like had the passion for it or were doing it because they loved it. But then also sometimes, especially in the in the nineteenth century, this almost like desperation of not only wanting to get your stuff out because you love to write, but also like oh, man, in order to better whatever my situation is, I've got to get this stuff out there and make money. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And
1: Lisa?
2: I mean, one for me, this was even prior to the book, uh, was Shirley Jackson. And I think getting to know her more, even as we worked on this, um, she still is somebody who, like, I'm very touched by her story. And in a similar way, I'm touched by Marjorie Bowen, I I think it's both what Mel was describing, which is this drive to write and the drive to write these, these, what could be considered very dark stories. um, But also doing it in spite of, or maybe because of, I'm not really sure. I don't want to speak for these women (laughs) because I wasn't there, but like, I know Marjorie Bowen was, the breadwinner for her family. When she was writing, she started publishing at the age of 21 and just basically didn't stop. She, she wrote something like over 150 books and that was the main source of income for her family. And that always struck me kind of in the same way that Shirley Jackson and and she's written a lot about writing and kind of maintaining the, the ideas of a, home of course she was writing in like the you know the mid 20th century so you're talking like this 1950s housewife mm-hmm. these ideas um but she was also raising children and she she wrote two books about about her family life life among the savages and raising demons yeah. and and they're they're really funny um <laughs> accounts of kind of her family life these little like domestic sketches i guess that's what you'd call them mm. but The fact that women were balancing all of this and still managing to maintain a writing schedule and to be successful at it, both critically um, but also financially, because that was something Shirley Jackson would also talk about. She was like, you know, the fridge would break in the house and I would go sell a story and then take the paycheck and buy a new fridge. (laughs) And um, that always strikes me, too, because as somebody who, you know, I'm married, I'm raising two little kids and I'm also trying to write. And that always like struck with me, just this, not only this like drive within me to create the art, but then also to balance it with everything else that just you have going on in life. Mm -hmm. Not to mention what society tells you you need to be doing, right? That's a whole other thing, but I don't know. I always, I found that very touching and I found it very real and something I could connect to. And I think probably a lot of women could connect to that.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And Melanie, I'll start with you on this uh, question. Uh, We just have a couple more. I think you mentioned, each of you mentioned something that surprised you, but as you did your research, what was the most surprising thing uh, you came across? Nothing pops right to mind, you know, like a a Rorschach test. Like, what's the first thing you think of when I say surprised (laughs) you?
1: (laughs) Oh, man. I'm trying to think, like, what I found most surprising in this book I think there are a couple things that kind of surprised me. One was I, when we started this, I knew that there were more women writing for Weird Tales in the Pulp Magazines than necessarily come to mind. But I didn't know much of anything about Gertrude uh, Barrows-Bennett. And the more I read about her, the more I found was really interesting because she... In some ways, she was writing weird, what we think of now as weird stories, like right before and around the same time as H.P. Lovecraft. And yet when people talk about the weird, they basically just talk about Lovecraft and kind of his disciples. And while he admired her work, her name has kind of fallen by the wayside when you think about weird fiction. And so that was something... I mean, I knew we were going to find a lot of more women writing in the pulp magazines and people would necessarily think. But I had not really thought about how. I mean, I just kind of accepted this narrative that H.P. Lovecraft kind of originated this. So that was really cool to see that and to read some of her stories and see how she was doing similar things. Um, and then I guess the other thing would be when we were doing the initial research for the book, that was when I discovered Jewel Gomez. Um, uh, and her book, The Gilda Stories, which I am ashamed to say that it took me that long to discover that. And I had just read The Gilda Stories, I think, before we started working on Monster She And I loved her portrayal of a black woman, lesbian vampire and like the way that she kind of took the vampire myth in really interesting ways. Kind of anticipating, you know, what Octavia Butler would do with the vampire and fledgling. So I don't know. Surprise might be too strong of a word for those two things, but those are two things where I was like, you know, one, this idea of like maybe there were some other folks around the time of Lovecraft developing weird that we don't talk about, and the other is, yeah, this really cool way that in the '70s, you know, Gomez kind of takes the vampire story in a whole new direction.
0: Okay. And Lisa.
1: Mm, um. <laughs>
2: Mm -hmm. yeah i was you know i I was actually thinking about jewel gomez (laughs) while you were (laughs) while you were talking um yeah i had known of the gilda stories but really by name only i think before this book i i had no idea that a vampire novel could be so I, i i'm struggling to find the right descriptor for it um I think before, if I had read a vampire novel, it was either the Anne Rice kind of vampire um, or, of course, Dracula, which, you know, I love Dracula, you know, where they're, they're these sort of debonair, wealthy, almost aristocratic kind of old vampires who, who are very, like, libertine in their, mm-hmm. <laughs> in their um, lifestyles. Or I was used to kind of, you know, talking about horror comics, like the 30 days of night type of monstrous, monstrous vampires, you know, where there are these just bloodthirsty creatures that that are out just to, you know, take you down. And mm-hmm. they're just hunting you to kill you. Um, th- those were really the only type of vampires I had ever really encountered. And I, I thought I had read a lot because I had worked on the encyclopedia of the vampire prior to that as a contributor. And I had done some research into vampire literature and yeah, those, that was surprising to me. And that led, I think to, at least for me, it led to Octavia Butler. I had never read fledgling. I didn't even know that Octavia Butler had written a vampire story. And so I always kind of connect those two now in my brain. Um, But that they are completely different types of stories Mm -hmm. that, it's this whole different brand of vampire that I had never really encountered before. And I, I really enjoyed that. So, hmm. um, yeah, I think, I think that was just surprising is it was just kind of like uncovering a whole nother subgenre of, of vampires, which I enjoyed.
0: Yeah. I want to look those up and read them myself. That sound pretty cool. Cause I'm a vampire fan as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So for either of you, um, either or both, um, apart from the stuff you mentioned, did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published?
2: Um, published. No, I I don't think the short answer is that we were lucky enough to be able to pitch the book to quirk. Mm -hmm. And really before we had, you know, we hadn't researched, we had started the research, but we really did not have much of an idea of what, what it really was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, for reasons I don't understand, fully listened to us in our excited ramblings <laughs> and decided to work with us on the book, which we're very thankful for. So, I mean, if you look at it like that, it was rel- relatively easy to get published. The, the long answer to that is that it was, you know, over a decade of research for both of us and, and talking about it and working on other things. So the research that went into it was a lot longer. <laughs> um going up going up into it and then and i think writing it was pretty intense um because we did have you know a deadline which i think at times it felt like we weren't sleeping and we all we were doing was just um reading and reading (laughs) (laughs) um but
1: uh yeah i I don't know if that answers your question but (laughs)
0: no that works And, and melanie
1: yeah, I agree with what Lisa said. The the publishing was was kind of a joy I into in, a certain respect because it's we did not you know, finish Monster She Wrote, and then try to market the project around to get it published. Like Lisa said, we pitched we pitched an idea that we had for what would become Monster She Wrote, and Quirk was super interested in it. And then we went to you know different proposals, and we went through the process with the publisher. But Quirk was very interested in the idea, and we we were like Lisa said, we were lucky that they they loved this this gem of an idea and worked with us through that process. And and then we had you know the six or seven months to write write the draft. Luckily, we had done a lot of research before this, but then, of course, there was a lot of research that went into it then. The writing process, and I think we've talked about this before, but I mean, I really enjoy writing with Lisa. I feel like she, I hope you enjoy writing with me. Of um. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and so, writing together is never really the issue. We are we are pretty good uh, in our writing process together. But writing, of course, is difficult and hard. I mean, that's the nature of it. And we had you know a limited amount of time, obviously, to produce this. And we had stuff going on. Like, I mean, I was changing jobs and moving at that time, and so there was a lot of like we just had to communicate with each other and let let you know keep each other apprised as to where we were on the manuscript and 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 that sort of thing. So it definitely was not without its stresses. It wasn't kind of a, a simple, smooth flow, I guess, but I very much enjoyed the process of writing with Lisa and it was really cool to get to know get to know these characters. So yeah, I mean there were those moments where it was like, I cannot find this book, you know, and I'm really stressed out about it. Or I'm moving into a new house and I have no internet now. But the, thank goodness we work so well together that there were no stresses with that aspect of the working relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's been almost a year since this was published. Um, what are the writing projects each of you are currently working on?
2: Um, we've got, oh. I think we've got some ideas for another joint project mm-hmm. Um. But nothing that we've really kind of nailed down. I know there are a lot of topics that we're still interested in. And that I think especially now that we feel like Monster She Wrote kind of has an audience out there that we, we'd we like to see what we can do. But but nothing that we've completely and totally nailed down. I think we're at the point right now where Melanie is just getting frantic texts from me saying, what about this? Um. <laughs> I, I get. I, I will find a little like you know newspaper article from, from like you know 1916 or something, and I'll be like, "There's something here I'm interested in." Or yeah. the next day is you know something else completely. So um, there 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 will be I think future projects, just nothing that we've quite nailed down yet. <laughs>
0: And I know, so, uh, winning the Locus Award is, is pretty recent. and, and winning that and other awards, have that, has that affected your approaches or, you know, what you think your cap, your ability to successfully pitch a project are, are there, do you see any changes from that?
1: I mean, I, f- I feel like, well, first off, I just have to say, I mean, we're both honored by these awards. I, I think, especially at the, Well, both of them were surprises to us. But I think the Locust Award, especially um, both the Stoker and the Locust, had we were amongst amazing books too. So it was great to do that. And we also love the response that Monster she wrote seems to be getting as well, which is really cool. Um, I feel like, and Lisa's right. I mean, we definitely want to do more projects together. But right now, we're kind of in we're, we're we're tossing around ideas more than anything else. But I hope that that helps us maybe to be able to to pitch uh, projects in the future. Um, I definitely would like to be able to build on that. I'm hoping as well that that maybe helps us have a little bit of a broader audience for our work. I mean, speaking as someone who, you you know, I'm teaching at university, as I mentioned earlier, and a lot of the stuff I write is academic. I've always tried to write in a style that's accessible, but if you're published in mainly academic journals, you're not going to get maybe a broad audience. So for me working with Lisa on the two podcasts that we have and working on monsters she wrote and working on trying to take my academic writing and open it up a little bit more. That has been great. And, and I'm hoping that this can maybe lead to some more opportunities for that as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Um, Where can people find each of you on the web, um, social media web pages, and even if you can mention the podcast addresses?
2: Um, sure. I'm, well, I have a website. It's Mm www.lisakroger.com. Um, and I am on Twitter and Instagram. Um, those are the best places I think to reach out if, if you're on social media, um, on Twitter, I'm at LB Kroger, mm-hmm. and on Instagram, I'm at Lisa underscore Kroger. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not on Facebook, although sometimes you can tag me in things, which baffles me. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're on Facebook, don't <laughs> don't um, try to tag tag me or go to my page because it's technically not supposed to exist. So <laughs> it's it's my ghost social media yeah. presence, <laughs> um, and then. The uh, the uh, podcast it are at No Fear Cast uh, pretty much across the board on social media. Um, it's K N O W Fear, so it's it's an academic look at the horror genre. No Fear Cast, and then our newest one is at Monster She Wrote, um, or it's Monster She Wrote Podcast, and it's at Monster Wrote across social media. So that one just started. I think in February was when we released our first episode. So it's pretty new, but we're excited about it.
0: Okay. And I'll spell that, that your last name for listeners is, well, Lisa is L I S A and Kroger is K R O G E R. And, and Melanie, do you have uh, any to add to that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I have a website as well. It is. It's just my name, Melanie R Anderson.com. And I can spell my name. It's M E L A N I E. Uh, R and then my last name is a N D E R S O N. Um, And then I'm not on Twitter. I have not, I have not done that. I have not taken that step, but I am on Instagram. And my handle on Instagram is Melanie R Anderson seven.
0: Okay. All right. Um, Well, that's all the questions I have. Do either of you have any final thoughts or words?
2: No, just thank you so much for uh, inviting us on. This is a great, great
1: chance to talk
0: oh yeah i enjoyed it and and melanie
1: yeah oh thank you for having us i enjoyed it it's always great to talk about the book and uh yeah people read more read more women writers of horror and speculative fiction
0: (laughs) oh yeah definitely (laughs) was was that agreement there from uh... (laughs) i think so yeah (laughs) (laughs) read more
1: Uh,
0: actually when you mentioned the um the one author who came up who did the whole um finding scientific explanation for horror stuff, you know, I thought Scooby-Doo, the Scooby-Doo yes. cartoon. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyway, all right. Uh, well, thank you both for speaking with me.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.